Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, February 25th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, the United States has ordered enough vaccines for every American, and then some by the end of July. But almost a quarter of our population may not be eligible for them by then. Pediatric cancer advocate Nancy Goodman joins us to discuss why she believes COVID vaccine trials need to be sped up for kids. Novavax was a biotech company struggling to keep its doors open, but then it struck gold with a vaccine for COVID-19. Now the company is one of the more surprising success stories of the pandemic, and we'll discuss its remarkable turnaround with Wall Street Journal reporter Greg Zuckerman. Finally, we'll recap a busy week of, well, some non-vaccine news, including the confirmation process for new health secretary and a glimpse at the future of therapeutic stool. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company dedicated to making clinical research more agile, safer, and friendlier for the people who participate. During the pandemic, regulatory agencies like the FDA have received praise for encouraging quick and meaningful adaptations. Do you think these changes are permanent? Starting with the 21st Century Cures Act in 2016, lots of initiatives have tried to modernize clinical trials, but adopting innovative tech was still challenging for pharmaceutical research. But the pandemic has changed medical research in innumerable ways, and it's made innovation non-optional. These technologies are now a requirement to ensure that clinical programs can continue while keeping patients safe. Thanks, Chris. For more information, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com. Nancy Goodman is a force. I once heard NIH Director Frances Collins speak about her with awe. She's championed legislation called the Creating Hope Act to incentivize drug companies to work on pediatric rare diseases. That law led to the creation of priority review vouchers worth more than a billion dollars. She did all of this after losing her 10-year-old son, Jacob, in 2009 to a rare form of brain cancer. The next day, she opened up her laptop and founded Kids vs. Cancer, a group that pushes for medicines to be developed faster for children. And she's wondering, amid the fastest vaccine development program in history, why kids are still months away from getting access to COVID-19 vaccines. Nancy Goodman joins us now. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. I'm thrilled to be here. So in discussing COVID vaccines for kids, the argument always comes up that the disease doesn't strike them as hard or as much as it does adults. So are COVID vaccines necessary for kids? Well, that's a great question, Meg. And I think that, you know, we need to talk about that much more carefully and make a more careful um, decision about when we're going to give kids vaccines. I think we all agree that we're eventually going to give kids vaccines. Um, And so the question is, is it better to do now or is a delay really important? I think um, it may very well be better to do right now. So we heard just this week from Moderna that they have fully enrolled their vaccine trial in kids aged 12 to 17, and that they plan to start another trial starting at the age of six months in the near term. And Pfizer, which also has an authorized vaccine, is at a similar pace in terms of pediatric studies. So drug companies say they first prove vaccines work in older age groups to get data on safety and then progressively move younger. What do you think of that system of testing vaccines? So look, I'm not a um, physician or clinical trialist, so I'm not going to comment on the science per se, but I just want to ask a few questions. First of all, um, when Pfizer and Moderna or any 
pharmaceutical company starts a clinical trial, why did they have 18 years of age as the minimum age of eligibility? So that's the first thing. I think companies usually go down to 18 years of age just because it's tradition. There's so many variables in designing a trial and they just check the box for 18 years of age. So I really want them to explain to us what the rationale was for not testing kids in the first place. In the cancer world, which I'm more familiar with, um, what we talk about is there is a break around puberty. And it is the case that sometimes pre-puberty, there's a different dosage and scheduling and even potentially different toxicity profile for therapy. So maybe we do need to be more careful before puberty, um, but maybe we don't. And let's talk about it. I think it's fantastic that um, Moderna has a clinical trial down to six months of age, or they will. I think that's um, really important. I hope that that the trial is big enough that we're really going to get some important information. My understanding is Pfizer really doesn't have a trial that's um, big enough to be sufficiently powered to give us the information we need yet. You know, I think when we talk about um, delaying clinical trials for kids or Um, withholding, you know, do we really need a clinical trial for kids 12 to 17? Do we really need that extra information? And and I would just love vaccine clinical trial design experts to explain to us why we really need it if some of those kids are as tall and as heavy as, you know, adults, taller and heavier than small women, for example, or even men. Um, because, you know, it is the case that 300 kids have di- almost 300 kids have died in the U.S. so far of COVID. And over 2,000 kids have multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Um, and they're just sick, sick kids. And, you know, that's like 12 school buses full of kids have died. And as we delay vaccinations, what we're saying is that there are going to be more kids who we know will die because um, they weren't vaccinated, Right. And we know that there'll be thousands of kids who have multi-system inflammatory syndrome who will be um, really, really sick. And they wouldn't have been if they got an early vaccination. So that's, that's, you know, that's the harm that we're, we're agreeing to um, experience so that we delay these vaccinations. So one of the reasons that you created this voucher system is because you wanted to incentivize the drug companies to develop cancer drugs for kids. You know, cancer in kids is much rarer than it is in adults. In COVID vaccines, however, they're designed to be given as, you know, given to as many people as possible. 22% of the population is under 18. So what do you think is happening here? You know, look, we were all in a crisis as a nation. In 2020, companies just put together whatever clinical trials they could. It's incredible that they got results so quickly and that adults are able to be um, vaccinated. Um, but again, um, I think what's happening now is um, they're not thinking about how to get information for kids as fast as possible. So there's been an increasing movement of vaccine hesitancy in pediatric vaccines even before COVID. And the pandemic has led to sort of a different flavor of this. A group of people worried the vaccines have been developed too fast, for example. What do you think is the best way to address those concerns? <sighs> you know, I think that's such a great question, Meg. And um you know, I just don't, from a personal perspective, it's just not how I would I would approach these issues. You know, I'm like very careful in what I eat. I eat organic and plant-based, but as soon as I can get a vaccination, I'm going to be there, right? So I'm clearly in the vaccination camp. You know, a couple of years ago, um, my organization worked with the state of New York. There was used to be an uh, opportunity for, for families to... Um, 
not vaccinate their kids for certain vaccinations based on uh, religious rationale. And so New York has ended that exemption. And people felt really, really scared of vaccinations. And I think that that was the problem. I think we need to have a discussion. We need to, we need to have more talk, discussions with people who are really, really scared and understand why they're scared and really um, see if we can find ways to assure them that it is really safer to vaccinate your kid or yourself than to go unvaccinated. We've spoken so many times over the years, going back to 2014. Um, and one thing you said to me at, at that time was you were struck by the sort of approach of the the drug industry and sort of the medical complex that we don't test drugs in kids because we want to protect them from the medicines. Um, while the mindset should be we're protecting them with medicines. Um, I, I know you have more work going on in this area trying to incentivize drug companies to be testing sort of simultaneously their drugs in kids. Maybe just tell us more about that. Sure. Well, you know, traditionally, as you said, we have a sort of paternalistic um, approach, both in, in pharmaceutical and biotech industry, you know, and in our society at large, where we say, well, let's test on adults first. And then if we get, you know, if it's effective and if the toxicities are acceptable, then we'll try them in kids. But as you said, the question is like, you know, how are kids suffering um, while they aren't, until they get this therapy and while they're waiting for adult clinical trials? And, um, you know, in the cancer world, we've been talking about this for several years with the FDA and the FDA has been terrific. And in fact, um, they took a leadership position in the cancer, in the Oncology Center of Excellence, and they published two guidances where they said, you know what, um, let's not have 18 as the knee-jerk minimum age of eligibility for clinical trials. Let, let's go down to the age that makes sense for every drug. And it could be all the way down to five years old or, you know, maybe even six months old. I realize we're in a crisis with COVID and, you know, maybe it's just tough to do everything at the same time, but I wish we would go back to those guidances at the FDA and ask, you know, do they apply to COVID as well? And COVID therapy trials and COVID vaccination trials. Here's like the really uncomfortable thing that we're not talking about in the U.S. So 500,000 people have died, um, which is just terrible. And, you know, but the fact is about 400,000 of these people are over the age of 65, you know, and we are shutting down our economy. We're asking our kids not to go to school to have mental health issues, to not see their friends and be socially delayed, to potentially have a life with a lower income and fewer professional opportunities, you know, because right now a lot of seniors are dying and suffering. It's like, of course, you know, there are, there's still 100,000 people under 65, but, you know, um, I mean, I love my parents. I'm closer to 65 than 18. Um, but I don't, you know, we're asking kids to take a huge hit for seniors. Like that's the uncomfortable, that's the uncomfortable truth we're not talking about. So if we're going to ask kids to take this huge hit, we just need to open schools and take care of kids as soon as we can. And, and look, if, if vaccine experts come back and say, okay, Nancy, well, there really are toxicities we're worried about in an early pediatric study. And it's really the case that these studies we're doing of kids from age 12 to 17 would give us additional information that would be very important in designing a younger pediatric trial. You know, then I would understand the delay, but they really haven't explained the delay. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Damien. I, I really had a terrific time. 
Novavax is a small Maryland-based biotech company and one of the most dramatic turnaround stories of the COVID-19 pandemic. Decades of missteps and disappointments in its vaccine development efforts had left Novavax struggling to survive its employees walking out the door. But when the pandemic hit, Novavax decided to make an all-or-nothing bet on developing a COVID-19 vaccine. That risky decision paid off big time. Today, recently announced clinical data show Novavax to have one of the most effective vaccines against COVID-19, and authorization from regulatory agencies is possible in the next two months. Its stock price has soared, and supply contracts worth billions of dollars have been signed. Earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal published a profile of Novavax and its top executives and researchers. It's a fascinating story of science, perseverance, and a little bit of luck. That story was written by Wall Street Journal reporters Greg Zuckerman and Peter Loftus, and Greg joins us now to discuss. Greg, welcome to 3 Out Loud. Great to be here. So, Greg, I love the lead of your story, which describes Novavax employees gathering last January at a bar to discuss how they might salvage their careers. Uh, explain the company's bumpy history up to that point. Yeah, it's kind of an unlikely uh, story. They, as recently as 16 years ago, their lead product was a cream for uh, menopausal women uh, dealing with hot flashes. Uh, the cream didn't work. They proceeded to focus on vaccines. They made vaccines for HIV, SARS, swine flu, Ebola, you name it, and they've made an, a vaccine for it. And each time it failed, um, either the epidemic died out or they didn't meet their endpoints. Um, so yeah, we going into 2020, um, they really <laughs> had only a few months left of cash. The stock was under $4 a share. These employees were meeting at the bar trying to figure out their futures. Um, it was a difficult uh, situation for them. So maybe it's worth zooming out on some of the science involved. How does Novavax go about creating its vaccines, and how does that technology differ from the mRNA approach we're familiar with thanks to Moderna and Pfizer? Sure. So, yeah, we are familiar with the mRNA approach, whereby we send instructions uh, into the body, and the body creates the spike protein, and the immune system reacts. Um, what Novavax does is a little more of a traditional, one could argue, approach. It's a protein subunit uh, method, they call it, which is used for things like shingles and B. Um, basically, they create that um, spike protein uh, in their lab. Um, they do it through a baclarovirus, which is an insect virus. Um, they use insect cells, and they create it in the lab, and they put it in the uh, vaccine, and they inject it in the arm. Before COVID, though, of course, Novavax wasn't having much success with vaccines. How bad did it get at the company? I mean, there was a period where um, Gregory Glenn, um, one of the senior executives at the company, broke down crying in his car, he told us. Um, he was driving home and he was losing employees. People um, needed to pay bills and the company couldn't really give them raises and such. And really, there were, there were periods when they were kind of um, unclear what their future was going to be, if they had a future. I mean, they did a reverse stock split in 2019 because the stock was under a dollar a share and it proceeded to go down 20% more after that uh, 20 for one split. So in the, the office party at the end of 2019 was a couple bottles of Coke and some slices of pizza. So this is really an unlikely success story, not the kind of company you would have expected to help get us out or potentially from this pandemic. 
So, Greg, as you reported in your story, you know, when the pandemic hit, Novavax shifted to work on a vaccine for COVID-19 to fund the clinical trials. The company had to go to the White House and and practically beg to be included in Operation Warp Speed. And then in January, just last month, Novavax released interim results from a phase three clinical trial that was conducted in the UK. And what did those data show? Yeah, it was pretty impressive data. I mean, uh, it was about 89% efficacy, but that, remember, was including at the time you had that variant, the UK variant. On an apples-to-apples basis, one can argue that their their vaccine is comparable to uh, both Moderna and Pfizer, and it doesn't have to be kept at the same low temperatures as those vaccines. There may be better durability. Listen, I'm a a skeptical, uh, maybe even cynical journalist, so I keep waiting for the the shoe to drop there on Novavax, but the data has been really impressive. One thing that stood out to me reading your story and you having kind of watched Novavax from a distance and that sort of sputtering that you mentioned over years and years and years, I had forgotten that they'd gotten down to being a penny stock and and now have, you know, their stock prices orders of magnitude beyond that. And they have a vaccine that seems to work. It's like as if GameStop went on to become like literally Amazon in terms of both the change in valuation, but also like they're functionally doing a thing that I think a lot of people in biotech counted them out on ever succeeding in. Yeah, so I'm a business writer who writes a lot about healthcare, but I'm not a science writer. And from the outside, I was kind of skeptical. Here's a stock that was so low and they never produced anything. And there's a lesson here, at least for me, there was a lesson that sometimes there's really good science being done at some of these dinky little companies and they don't catch a break sometimes or they're just not quite there. And science is about incremental improvements. And that's sort of the lesson I I, I took from this story that they, believe it or not, were making these improvements along the way. And some of us on the outside just weren't aware of them or weren't giving them enough credit. But internally, the science scientists were actually getting more excited, which is why they turned and focused on a COVID vaccine early 2020. So in the course of your reporting, what surprised you the most about Novavax and its COVID-19 vaccine effort? Well, I was impressed by the science and the scientists. There are a group of really dedicated, impressive uh, scientists within the company that have been there for years. And I kind of asked them, well, why why'd you stick around? I mean, you could have gone elsewhere. They just liked their work. They liked having some authority and autonomy. There's a guy named Gail Smith who's the one who's credited with coming up with these insect viruses that are used in, in various medicines and treatments and therapeutics. And he just liked staying there and liked the fact that the CEO gave him some autonomy. So at these little companies, there often is really good science being done. And I took that as a lesson anyway. So what is next for Novavax? You know, there's a group of companies, including Novavax, and you can argue maybe BioNTech and Moderna, that have really interesting futures. Um, It's it's not clear whether they can pull these things off, but I know Novavax wants to do an all-in-one, a flu and and COVID um, vaccine that, you know, if we argue, and I believe it's the case, that we're going to have to deal with this thing for the long term that we may need an all-in-one. So, listen, we'll see if they can pull it off, but the reason the stock price is over $200 a share, up from under four just over a year ago, is investors think they may be part of this uh, future wave of pharmaceutical kind of giants. Well, speaking of the investor base, um, you know, all of us who have presences on Twitter um, get a lot of interaction from Novavax believers. Um, And 
you know, some of it is not very nice. Uh, you know, they could be very enthusiastic, I guess, is one way of putting it. But at the same time, I, I guess you can also look at this like a lot of these folks have really been believers in Novavax for a long time. I mean, since way before COVID, they've been in this stock. I, I know people who have been. And these are folks who are enrolling in the clinical trials who declare that they will not get another vaccine unless it's Novavax. I, I just wonder, you know, in, in the course of your reporting, how much did you sort of encounter that culture? What are your takeaways on it? Yeah, there is a whole subculture of investor out there that are believers. And they believe these little dinky biotech stocks with very little track record are going to solve and cure everything. And I, as a journalist, and maybe you guys as well, I've come to the point where I am usually very cynical about those people. And nine times out of 10, they get it wrong and they make a bet on some horse that falls far short of the finish line. But there is a lesson here that once in a while, these uh, investors, the small investors, know what they're talking about and they believe for good reason. Now, was there serendipity involved with some good luck? For sure. They got billions of dollars from the government and from quasi-government organizations, from the Gates Foundation. Without that kind of help in 2020, there's no way they could have developed these vaccines. But to their credit, they pulled it off. And they, it, to me, it's a story of resilience uh, and persistence and a lesson here to have a little more respect for the, the science at some of these smaller, uh, unheralded biotechs. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Great to be here, guys. Finally, there is life outside the world of COVID-19 vaccines. So why not do a lightning round? So first up, California Attorney General Javier Becerra is going through the confirmation process to become the next Secretary of Health and Human Services. Now, because Democrats have functional control of the Senate and because Becerra doesn't seem to have a history of mean tweets, his confirmation is probably a foregone conclusion. But I wanted to zoom in on something that our colleague Lev Fasher pointed out this week um, in that confirmation process, which is that Republican senators opposing Becerra said he's not fit for the job in part because he has never worked for a drug company and basically isn't sympathetic enough to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, which I thought was interesting, one, because his predecessor, Alex Azar, was the first HHS secretary to have ever worked at a drug company. So it's not like there's, um, you know, that's a, a standard that we hold this position to. But maybe more notably, I wonder if this might mark a turn in pharma's relationship with the Republican Party in a post-Trump world. I think we all remember President Trump, you know, de facto leader of the GOP, maybe still leader of the GOP in a lot of people's minds, was pretty hostile to the drug industry. And so I wonder if, you know, these senators kind of using this tack, which granted, you know, is just politics in terms of opposing the other party's nominee. I wonder if that might tell us something about, you know, there might be a return to tranquility between the Republican Party and the drug industry. Yeah, I mean, I was going to I was going to say, Damien, that it seems like that's almost like a return to normalcy. I think it's hilarious for multiple reasons. Um, I do think it, it perhaps shows a shift uh, that was brought into play by the Trump administration's sort of demonstrated pattern of installing people um, in posts. Uh, essentially, you know, from the industries they're supposed to be regulating <laughs> as part of the government. Um, but it's also funny because Alex Azar, you know, 
perhaps the fact that he came from pharma did actually end up leading to a more favorable um, environment for the pharmaceutical industry. And one could argue through Operation Warp Speed, knowing how drug companies work, that might have just created a better environment for them um, to operate, at least on COVID vaccines. But Alex Azar was the first person to claim that because he worked in a big drug company, he knows all the dirty tricks they play and he was going to use them against them. (laughs) So uh, it's a funny argument. And yes, it's politics. Um, I also wonder if there's some element of, you know, the pandemic just changing attitudes toward the pharmaceutical industry and showing that it's, you know, it is really important and you do want to sort of foster it along, um, even though there are a lot of things that, you know, arguably do need to be regulated more or or changed in the way um, things work in terms of drugs in this country. All right. So next up, Open Biome, uh, a pioneering nonprofit in the field of fecal transplant, said this week that it's winding down its program of collecting, analyzing and shipping out stool samples to treat disease. Meg, thoughts on this? I have so many thoughts on this. This was the first topic of um, our first ever Signal podcast episode, my my long ago um, podcast that I did with Luke Timmerman for STAT. Um, and I'm just, I've been fascinated by the idea of fecal transplants and, and just the idea that this science could be used um, as a way to uh, address C. difficile, this horrible condition that can arise after lots of antibiotic use. And, and um, Open Biome essentially was formed to um, provide a, a safe and monitored way of getting stool from donors um, to people who could benefit from it. And um, the whole thing we focused on in that first episode of Signal was that there were biotech companies coming to capitalize on this new science of the microbiome and to develop drugs that, you know, specifically targeted the things that might be working. Um, And the argument of is a drug better or is the whole stool sample better? Um, and an element of this that um, our colleague Kate Sheridan wrote about in, in the story about Open Biome shutting down is that the the companies are succeeding and that might mean Open Biome um, isn't needed in the same way. Um, but it sounds like there's going to be a gap between those two things happening and, and some patients might be kind of worried about that. Next topic. Late last week, the FDA officially acknowledged something that has frustrated academics and physicians for decades. Pulse oximeters, which are the devices used to measure oxygen levels, are often considerably less reliable for black patients compared to white patients. The agency issued a public warning about the devices, noting that the color of a patient's skin can affect their accuracy. Yeah. So this is obviously, you know, good news in the eyes of the people who've advocated for attention to this very real and and medically clinically demonstrable issue. Um, But, you know, it's again, sort of an after the fact thing. And I I think a lot of people in that field, what they'd really like to see is the FDA be proactive about this to, to ask for data like this, when considering these devices for clearance, such that, you know, this would be on the label. Next, Tal Zaks, the chief medical officer of Moderna, will leave the company in September, ending a six-year tenure in which he presided over the development of the company's COVID-19 vaccine. We only promised you a brief respite from talking about COVID vaccines. So guys, what do we make <laughs> of the legacy Tal Zaks leaves? I-, I just wonder if he bought a small island somewhere to, to retire on. <laughs> well, right. So, you know, as Moderna pointed out in, in uh, 
announcing that that he'll he'll leave the company later this year. He joined when they were still preclinical and, and when the conversation about them was focused on whether they'd ever live up to this valuation that they had as a private company, whether uh, their technology would ever pan out. And, you know, sitting here in 2021 with a vaccine that members of my family have received, um, clearly that panned out pretty well. But Adam, you know, the, the numeral you're referring to is, uh, as, as we and others reported, Talzox was a prodigious seller uh, of Moderna stock in 2020. I think he netted out $72 million um, in profits from selling his shares of the company every single week uh, by exercising options and holding zero shares. And, you know, we, we wrote a story in which a lot of kind of corporate governance watchdog types um, they weren't fans of that. Um, they look at that as something that that should cause shareholders alarm. But it's kind of interesting. I mean, looking at, at Tall's tenure at Moderna as a whole, he was hired to, you know, chief medical officerize their products, their projects. And, you know, here they are unequivocally successful in that. And he made a lot of money in the process. Yeah, like there's no evidence that, you know, he's leaving for any other reason than just that he's been there for a really long time. The company is now on much firmer, more successful footing, and it's time for him to maybe retire or do something else. I'm sure that Talzax is going to be a very highly recruited healthcare executive. Um, any company would probably would love to have a guy like that, you know, within their ranks. I mean, on the other side, I mean, you have to say it is maybe a little bit strange, you know, the timing of his departure. Uh, you know, the company is just launching this uh, this vaccine. It has a lot of other stuff in the pipeline that it needs to needs to move forward. And, you know, he's leaving. So, it you know, I, I think people will have different perspectives on that. And, you know, right now we really don't know what's going on. And finally, one last thing on COVID-19 vaccines. This week, we got a first look at detailed data on Johnson & Johnson's one-dose vaccine, which on Friday will be the subject of a day-long meeting of expert advisors to the FDA. If those advisors vote in favor of its benefits, which they quite likely will, the FDA will quite likely grant the vaccine an emergency use authorization, and it will begin rolling out across the country in the presumably days to come. So what did we learn about J&J's vaccine that we didn't already know this week? One thing I was really looking forward to seeing was the breakdown of um, the variants included in the U.S. part of the trial. So J&J ran this study across multiple continents, um, and we knew that the efficacy varied from the U.S. to South Africa to Brazil. Um, it was 72% in the U.S. And I wondered if you know there, there could have been variants circulating during the time they were running the trial that could have affected that um, efficacy. And what it turned out to reveal was that... 96% of the samples were that D614G original sort of Wuhan strain or, or slightly mutated, you know, strain, but but the OG <laughs> variant, basically. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it really wasn't affected by that. So one shot gets you 72% efficacy against cases of COVID-19. That is lower than for the mRNA vaccines at 94, 95%. And so you are hearing people talk about these vaccines, like the mRNA vaccines are the Cadillacs and, um, the the other vaccines are like compact cars. And I think that the government is, you know, Dr. Fauci and uh, you heard from Jeff Science on the COVID 
uh, task force yesterday, or the response team, I guess they're calling it now, um, saying, you know, when you have a chance to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. You know, a a vaccine now that's 72% effective is much better than waiting weeks or months for one that's 94% effective. But it'll be fascinating to hear what the advisors, including Dr. Paul Offit, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, um, have to say about this vaccine tomorrow. And then the CDC's group of outside advisors um, who meet Sunday and Monday and uh, to hear if they have any specific recommendations for this vaccine and how best it could be used. Um, But because it's one shot, you know, three to four million doses going out next week means three to four million people uh, getting protected. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. And our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think the HHS secretary should have pharma experience. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.